Well, good morning again, everyone. I'm John. I love being at the Erie campus, see all my friends, see faces I haven't met yet. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to meet you after the service. The Boulder campus sends its love to Erie. It's a great time to be in Boulder right now. All the college students from CU are back at church, and there's such a crowd of them, and it's energizing and fun, and we're looking forward to a great fall in Boulder as we are in Erie and in Thornton. And part of our fall revolves around this series in the book of Hebrews, Greater Than. I don't know if you ever think about angels. I don't know if you believe in them. I don't know if you think they're real. I don't know if you consider whether or not they have anything to do with your day-to-day life or how much attention you give to them. But I will tell you who wants you to believe that angels are real. The Hallmark Company. I did a quick search for angels on their website, and I mean, there are hundreds of products you could buy. Do you want an angel figurine? They've got them. Stuffed animal angels, there's plenty of those. Books on angels, videos where you can learn about angels. Of course, they have Christmas ornaments and so many greeting cards all about angels. Then you search up Jesus on Hallmark.com. Less than half the number of Jesus-related products. Now, this is a totally unscientific survey. But in the eyes of the Hallmark Company, angels are a greater seller than Jesus. And the theme we're going to look at at the end, the final verses of Hebrews chapter 1, is this theme. That Jesus, despite what the Hallmark Company might think, Jesus is greater than than angels. Our series in the book of Hebrews is called Greater Than, and throughout the 13 chapters that we're going to study together this fall of this New Testament book or letter or sermon, we are going to see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is greater than anything we could ever encounter or anyone we could ever imagine. And today, he is greater than angels. So last week we looked at the first four verses of Hebrew chapter 1, and as Jason and Jen read for us earlier, today we're going to be looking at Hebrews 1, verses 5 through 14. So if you have a Bible, open it with me there. If you're new to studying the Bible, Hebrews is in the New Testament, kind of in the second part of the New Testament. The New Testament begins by four books that are the historical account of the birth and life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then we come to the book called Acts, which tells the story of the early church and the work that God did to expand the kingdom. And then we come to the letters of Paul, and the final letter that Paul wrote is a little tiny one-page letter to a man named Philemon. And after that, you find Hebrews. If you come to the book of James, you've gone a little too far. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1 together. And in verse 4, it says that Jesus became as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And the rest of chapter 1 explain this idea. That idea that Jesus is greater than or superior to even angels. And in the verses we're going to look at today, our author uses seven Old Testament references to build his case, to make an argument. And it's one that would have resonated with a first century audience, especially one that was steeped in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. 
in the scriptures. Many of them probably came from a Jewish background. And so the argument that he makes from the Old Testament would have made sense to them. And it would have been especially compelling to an audience that absolutely believed that angels were real. They knew and were familiar with how important angels had been throughout the unfolding of God's revelation to humanity, the ways that they had stepped in and ministered and examples throughout the Old Testament of of their work. So before we jump into our text, let's all get on the same page a little bit about what the Bible says about angels. First, who are they? Angels are spiritual, not physical beings. Although at times they appear to humans as though they have physical human-like bodies. Angels were created by God, we believe, before the earth was created and before mankind was created. Because angels were created, we'll see more about this later, they are not meant to be worshipped. There's an example in Revelation where the Apostle John tries to worship an angel. And the angel says, I too am a creature. Stand, don't worship me, worship God. So they are creatures not meant to be worshipped. And they often have a supernatural, otherworldly appearance when they appear to people. In fact, a common phrase that angels use when they show up in front of people is, do not be afraid. Because in some of their manifestations, they apparently invoke fear in the hearts of humans. Because when you see them, it's, it's kind of obvious, apparently sometimes, that they're not from around here. That they are otherworldly in their appearance. So what do they do? Their primary purpose is to worship and praise God. They surround his throne and sing that he is holy. They sing glory to God in the highest. They also protect God's people. That's so many of the examples we have in the Old Testament and throughout the scriptures of where angelic beings step in and help God's people in extraordinary circumstances. Maybe you know some of those stories from the Old Testament, like in Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace And the text says that a fourth person, an angel, appeared with them and protected them from this all-consuming fire. This fire that was so strong as it had been kindled by the king's servants, it had consumed them. And yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who showed faithfulness to God, were protected by an angel. Just a few chapters later in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel himself is thrown into the lion's den. And he testifies the next morning to King Darius as to why he was able to live and not be consumed by this ravenous lion that God had sent his angel to protect him. Lot is protected by two angels who tell him that the city of Sodom will be consumed and destroyed. And they give him a warning and lead him out of the city of Sodom so that he is spared from God's judgment on that place. You fast forward to the New Testament One of the most incredible stories in the book of Acts is a prison break where angels bust the apostles out of prison. It's incredible. So they protect God's people. And they're present for all sorts of important moments in the history of God's revelation to mankind. They're present in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. When the garden is closed and the the angel places a, a flaming sword of fire to disallow Adam and Eve from Uh, entering the Garden of Eden because of their sin at the very beginning of the Bible. At the end of the Bible in Revelation, Revelation is just packed full with angels and their presence, worshiping Jesus, glorifying God in the highest. 
course, angels were present to announce the birth of the Messiah, King Jesus. They appeared to several people, Mary and Joseph, Zechariah, Elizabeth, to announce that John the Baptist would be born and that Jesus would be born. Of course, the angels are there when, when Jesus is born to announce to the shepherds that the Messiah has come. They deliver in that moment God's message. And that's part of their purpose, is to be God's messengers. They were present with the delivery of the, uh, of the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law on Mount Sinai. They are present to announce the arrival of the king. They were present at the empty tomb. There's evidence in the New Testament that it was an angel who rolled away the stone when Jesus was raised from the dead for him to leave the tomb after three days of being dead and then being raised by the power of God. And of course, Jesus are, uh, angels are going to play an extraordinary part when Jesus returns to the earth and comes again in glory. Angels are amazing. These verses that demonstrate in Hebrews chapter 1 the superiority of Jesus to angels are in no way meant to belittle angels. However, they are meant to be seen as inferior to the Son of God. But we should be astounded and amazed by what angels do, who they are. But the argument that this author makes in Hebrews is as amazing and incredible as angels are. Jesus is greater. That's amazing. Okay, so the way we're going to jump through Hebrews chapter 1 is take these seven verses, seven Old Testament references, and group them into three main arguments that I think the author makes here. That Jesus is greater than angels because first, he is enthroned as king. Second, Jesus is greater than angels because he is esteemed as creator. And third, and most importantly, Jesus is greater than the angels because he is exalted as God. So first, he is enthroned as king. Verse 5 says, For to which of the angels did God ever say? Now before we jump in, let me just say one thing here. Do you notice how the author is going to attribute these Old Testament references to one author. You see who the author is at the end of that phrase in verse 5? Who does the author of Hebrews think thinks wrote the Old Testament? God. For to which of the angels did God ever say? Now, these references that we're going to look at are from Psalms or from Samuel. There's a reference probably to Deuteronomy. They're from a number of different authors. But the author of Hebrews says, ultimately, these words that are in the Old Testament are the words of God himself. This is why we open the Bible every week together at Calvary. Not because we're interested in what some people who lived 2,000 or 4,000 years ago said. Not because we think they're especially insightful. No, because we believe by the Holy Spirit, God inspired these Old Testament authors and New Testament authors throughout thousands of years to reveal God's will to us. And if God has spoken, we should listen. We long to hear his voice. So, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
This is a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Now, if you know some of the language that the Old Testament uses to talk about angels, at times angels are referred to as the sons of God or the sons of Elohim. But never are the, is, is an angel referred to as the single solitary son of God. There is only one son, Jesus. He is the only one to whom God said, you are my son. In, in you I am most pleased. When Jesus was baptized, the voice of God testifies and says, this is my son, listen to him. God never said that to an angel. Now we grouped this verse under the heading of Jesus being enthroned as king. So why, why would I say that this is language that would make him enthroned or be a king? Because Psalm 2 is most likely a coronation psalm that would have been read at a ceremony, that's what a coronation is, when a king would have ascended a throne. And particularly, a king who would have descended from the great king of Israel, King David. And so these words would have been read over that king in his coronation ceremony. That the Lord would say to that king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now what does that mean? It does not mean that that king is God's literal begotten son, right? What it means is that the king stands under the authority of the father who is in heaven. The Bible says that God holds kings and rulers and leaders in his hand. They are to look to him for leadership and guidance and authority and ultimately submit themselves to God. And it was a reminder to the king of, of who do you look to as you rule? Now, different kings uh, did better with this than others. Some listened to God and obeyed God, and some were disobedient to God in the history of even the Davidic line, of that great line that God had promised through, the king, through king David. But this would be read over, over a king at their coronation ceremony. Now, one recurring theme we're going to see throughout all of these references are the ways in which these words of God have their short-term fulfillment in their original context. So in this place, at the coronation of a king, Psalm 2 would have been read and it would have been a word to that king. So they have a short-term fulfillment. But they also have a long-term prophetic fulfillment that is ultimately fulfilled in the single Son of God, Jesus Christ. So, who is the ultimate king that comes from David? Well, look at what the next reference says. Verse 5 goes on to say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is a quote from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 14. If you'd like, you can turn there with me in your Bible to 2 Samuel, verse 7. 2 Samuel documents the ministry of King David. And chapter 7 of 2 Samuel is kind of the most important chapter of 1 and 2 Samuel because it is the place where God makes a promise to David, what we call the Davidic covenant. It's a promise from God that through the throne of David, there will come a Messiah king who is Jesus. So in 2 Samuel 7, this, uh, 7, this is early in the reign of King David, and David has become the unquestioned king over all of Israel. He has returned to Jerusalem. He has built a, a palace for himself or a house. That's what the, the text says. And David looks over his whole kingdom and he says, the Lord has been so kind to me. 
and he has given me so much, and I have this beautiful house. But the Lord still, in Jerusalem, lives in a tent, a tabernacle, a temporary dwelling place. And it was on his heart that he should build a house for the Lord. And he shares his heart with the prophet Nathan. And Nathan goes and listens to the Lord. And through the prophet Nathan, the Lord reveals to David that it will not be David who will build a permanent house for God. Instead, it will be his son, Solomon, who will do so. And it says in 2 Samuel 7, in verse 8, Nathan says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. Skipping down to verse 9, And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth, and I will give you rest from your enemies. And in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, because David would die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here we're going to see a short-term fulfillment of prophecy and a long-term one. The short-term fulfillment is that David's actual physical son, Solomon, will build a temple for the Lord. That will be his work to accomplish. But there will be an even greater son who will come later in the line of David, Jesus. Verse 14 says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's what the author of Hebrews is referencing here. The line of kings that comes from King David. And the promise here is that one of the descendants of David will rule for all eternity. And that promise is not ultimately fulfilled in David. He died. Not ultimately fulfilled in Solomon. He also died. Not fulfilled in any of his descendants until Jesus. Back to Hebrews 1. Look at verse 8. But of the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The anointed one is the promised Messiah, the king who would... descend from the Davidic line. And this verse, which is a reference of Psalm 45, describes the kind of kingdom that the promised Messiah would reign and rule over. Look at the words that the psalmist uses to describe this kingdom. It's a kingdom of righteousness. It is an upright kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. It will last forever. This kingdom is without wickedness. And it's glad. It's a kingdom of gladness. This defines the kingdom that the Messiah would reign over. And that is the kingdom of Jesus. Okay, now verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 1. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? We saw this a little bit in the, in the first verses last week. That Jesus is able because of what he has accomplished on the earth. And as he ascends to heaven, he takes his rightful place on a throne, 
next to God, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Angels don't sit in the presence of God. Only Jesus is qualified to sit at the right hand of God after the great work that he accomplished. We all love to sit down after doing a great work. Maybe you worked in the yard yesterday, maybe you did some house projects, and there's nothing better than sitting down and relaxing and taking in all the great work that you accomplished, right? So when Jesus ascended to heaven, what kind of seat do you picture him occupying? Do you think he's in a lazy boy, taking a load off? Do you think he was so exhausted from his work that he had to put his feet up on the sofa? Because he's just tired? Do you picture Jesus sitting in an office chair, delegating tasks, taking care of some finalized administrative details? Some people think Jesus is sitting in a chair like you are, kind of an auditorium seat. Just a casual observer of what happens on the earth, but not really involved in any way in the details of what happens here. Is that the kind of seat Jesus is in? No. Jesus is seated right now, in these moments, in heaven, on a throne. Because he is the king. He has ascended to the right hand of God as the promised Davidic Messiah and sits in glory at the right hand of God Almighty. Now compare that to angels. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah who was a priest. He was an old man married to his wife, Elizabeth. They were advanced in years, the text says, and they had longed their entire life to have a child. But, but Elizabeth was barren. And as part of Zechariah's priestly duties, he was in the Holy of Holies, in the, at the altar of God in the temple. And there, the angel Gabriel stands before him and tells him that God has heard his prayers. His prayers have been answered and that Elizabeth and Zechariah would have a son. And Zechariah says, how can this be? I'm an old man. My wife is old too. It's, it's not possible. Gabriel's response is, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Compare that to the King Jesus, who is seated in the presence of God. Why do angels stand? Because they stand at the ready to serve the king, to do his bidding, to minister in whatever way he tells them to, in whatever way he directs them to. They are not seated as a ruler like Jesus is, but angels stand at the ready. Look at verse 14 of Hebrews. It says, are they not all, this is speaking of the angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Do you see how the author's argument builds with each quotation from the Old Testament? This is the promise of God unfolding in the Old Testament, coming to fruition clearly in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is enthroned as king in heaven. And therefore, he has all authority and power and majesty because of his enthronement. And so because he is enthroned, he is greater than angels because he has authority over them, because he rules over them. They obey his every command. 
his every directive. He sends them out to serve, to serve you, to minister amongst us, to protect God's people. So Jesus commands angels. They listen to him. They obey him. If Jesus is enthroned in heaven right now, I think the question for us is, is Jesus enthroned in our lives? Do we listen to his voice? Do we obey his commands? Do we delight to to do what he asks of us? Do we say with the prophet Isaiah, who who had a vision of being in the throne room of God with the angels, here I am, Lord, send me. Because Jesus is enthroned as king. So the angels see him as enthroned as king, and they also esteem him as creator. Look at verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews 1, which says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. This is Psalm 102, verses 25 and 27. And Jesus is esteemed here as creator. Look closely at verse 10. It says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Does that remind you of anything? Reminds me of these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And without him, not anything was made that was made. That's John chapter 1. Hebrews 1, John 1, Colossians 1 are some of the most important texts for us to see Jesus as creator, as king, and ultimately as God. They're a beautiful picture and help for us to see Jesus as holding deity, as being the creator, as being the one who made all things. So all over the New Testament, Jesus is esteemed as creator. And the author is making the argument here that the Old Testament points to Jesus' role as creator too. And his role as creator is all-encompassing. The end of verse 10 says, The heavens are the work of your hands. Jesus created everything, even the angels, which makes him greater than them. It goes on to say that all the physical things that Jesus has created will one day perish. The earth and the heavens. Creation is decaying. We see it happening all over the place. But Jesus remains. The end of verse 12 says that in spite of things decaying in our world, constantly changing, uncertain at times, and concerning, Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is unchanging. This is an unmistakable attribute of God. We use a theological term to describe this characteristic of God. It's that he is immutable, unchanging. And here we see Jesus as possessing this same attribute that God God does, which I find so comforting. Because in a world that is defined by change, there's nothing we need more than an unchanging Savior. The Son of God, Jesus. One who we can count on. Someone who will never leave us nor forsake us. That's the Son of God, who is enthroned as King, esteemed as Creator, and exalted as God. Back to verse 8. 
But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. We looked at this verse earlier, but did you notice when we did that God, the Father, refers to Jesus as God himself? Your throne, O God, is forever. Jesus, of course, referred to himself as God. It's why he was killed. Because he took on the divine name of Yahweh and equated himself with God the Father. And he was killed for it. And he allowed his, his followers to worship him, to call him Lord. And these very early followers of Jesus, who our author is writing to in Hebrews chapter 1, were undoubtedly facing persecution and problems because they worshiped Jesus. They exalted Jesus as God. And their friends and family and coworkers and people in the town that they lived in probably persecuted them for it. And they were tempted, as we'll see next week, to drift away from their commitment to exalting Jesus as God. This is a distinctly Christian belief that Jesus is God. Many world religions respect Jesus, admire Jesus, revere Jesus, think he's worth listening to, but they fall short of exalting or worshiping Jesus. One more verse, Hebrews 1, verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, God says, let all God's angels worship him. This is what sets us apart, my friends, is that we worship Jesus. It's not enough to think Jesus is cool. It's not enough to admire him. Not enough to respect him. Not enough to even listen to him. Not enough to even love him. We are called as followers of Jesus to worship Jesus. Do you worship Jesus? Do you worship Jesus? Do you stand with the author of Hebrews who says that Jesus is enthroned as king, esteemed as creator, and exalted as God? We're going to take communion together in just a moment, which is a time for us to proclaim the Lord's death until he returns, to confess our sins to the king. And I would just say, if you are in this room today and you do not yet worship Jesus, today is the day to call on the name of the Lord, to surrender to him as king, to acknowledge him as creator, and to worship him as God. If you haven't done that, let me give you a simple way to do it. It's from Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's all it takes to confess with your mouth that Jesus is God. That's what that word Lord means. 
that he is God. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's all you have to do. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get your life straight. You just call on the name of the Lord Jesus and worship him. I invite you to do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of worship because of who you are. The only begotten son of God who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. We worship you in our hearts and with our lives. And as we remember your death now, we praise you. We worship you. We thank you for accomplishing on our behalf what we could never accomplish on our own. That you would go to the cross, that you would humble yourself to the point of death, and that by the power of God you would be raised and ascend to heaven where you occupy your kingly throne today. May you be glorified in heaven as we worship you on the earth, Lord Jesus, our King. Amen.